This is a special episode of Choiceless from Rewire Radio, a podcast about reproductive injustice and the laws that put people in choiceless situations. I'm Jen Stanley, senior staff reporter at Rewire and the host of this podcast. We're here today to talk about the 5-3 Supreme Court decision in favor of Whole Woman's Health in the case Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. The case challenged two provisions of HB2, Texas's sweeping anti-choice law. Two of our storytellers this season, Candace and Valerie, had to leave Texas to access abortion care in part because of the restrictions put in place when this law was enacted. So I wanted to follow up this week and talk about what this decision means in the context of some of the stories we've heard this season. So I enlisted the help of one of our resident legal experts here at Rewire. Um, I am Jessica Mason Peeklo. I'm vice president of Law in the Courts at Rewire, and my job is to provide daily reporting analysis and commentary on reproductive rights and social justice issues that are happening within the courts. Jessica has tirelessly followed and covered Texas House Bill 2 since its introduction in 2013. I was very pleasantly surprised by the decision. Um, Going through oral arguments, it was clear to me that Justice Kennedy, who many of us believe to be the swing vote in this case, um, was not comfortable upholding the Texas restrictions. Um, It was just so clear that Texas, um, in passing HB2 and likely uh, other conservative states that have done the same, really overreached. They really felt like they had carte blanche from the federal court courts to uh, legislate away abortion rights so long as they just basically shrugged and said, well, it's for women's safety. We want patients to be okay, you know, and like invoke occasionally the horrors of Dr. Kermit Gosnell. Um, and and so the court put an end to that. So that is is amazingly important. Um, one of the th- one of the other things that I really uh, was excited about in this opinion, and it is a total law nerd point, but I think it's one um, that kind of gets overlooked is that Justice Breyer wrote the opinion rather than Justice Kennedy. And that matters because Justice Breyer is kind of known as the Supreme Court's data guy. He is heavy into statistics and correlation and and analysis like that. And as you read the opinion... You really see the impact of that as as wonderful as it was that every that all of these people were sharing their abortion stories with the court that, uh, you know, over 100 women lawyers filed an amicus brief explaining in very personal detail how having access to safe and legal abortion care made their careers possible. Those stories clearly had an impact, but this was a decision that is grounded in data. And so for abortion rights advocates, I think that that is fantastic because it has been, oh, I can't even think of the last abortion rights decision that we had that was actually grounded in data, in evidence, in putting legislators on notice to say, you cannot simply say a bill is for one thing when the evidence overwhelmingly shows that it is doing the opposite of that thing. With that said, I mean, we at Rewire, one of our biggest things is evidence-based reporting and getting the data out there and really debunking that uh, false equivalency. Uh, do you th- what do you think that opinion, Breyer's opinion, says about the future of reporting on these issues and the way that we talk about these issues from a national standpoint and more mainstream media standpoint? 
Well, I think that the national and mainstream media, while it's getting better, still has a long way to go in how it reports on these issues and in particular these cases. Um, one you know, example that we've seen sort of broadly um, is the press talking about the fact that HB2 was struck down. HB2 was not struck down in its entirety, and I felt a little bit like a buzzkill on the first round of, of press related to this coverage because um, I was constantly sort of reminding um, listeners and, and folks that uh, there are still a lot of very harmful effects or provisions of the bill that, that are in effect. This is an incredibly important point here. HB2 was not struck down. HB2 is an omnibus abortion law. Which um, I describe that typically as sort of a Frankenstein's monster of abortion restrictions that are all stitched together into one monster bill. This particular Frankenstein's monster of a bill included a 20-week ban, an amendment to the physician's reporting requirement saying that the doctor must include probable post-fertilization age of the unborn child, the law's language, not mine, and restrictions on medication abortion that would require up to four visits for the abortion pill, a tall order for people living hundreds of miles from the nearest clinic. It also required doctors to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals and for clinics to meet the architectural standards for an ambulatory surgical center. These are the provisions that Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt were concerned with, and they're also the requirements that forced Texas clinics to close and would have forced even more to close if the Supreme Court upheld the law. When you have omnibus bills like that, you are able to pick and choose which portions um, that you want to um, challenge, and that does not preclude you from challenging other provisions later on down the road. Um, So there's that part of it. Um, when I first started reporting on this story and the lawsuit started, I asked advocates that same question, particularly with regard to the 20-week ban. And at the time, um, the lawyers said that the 20-week ban portion of, of the bill, and at the time, the lawyers acknowledged that that was a really devastating um, component of the bill, but in terms of resources and strategic allowances, they wanted to first target what they felt had the greatest impact and work their way backwards from there. Um, the res- the thinking being that um, fewer people need a procedure at 20 weeks or beyond, um, and whereas um, everybody needs access to a reproductive health care clinic, regardless if it's to have an abortion or not. As you may recall from their interviews on this podcast, Candace from Episode 1 and Valerie from Episode 3 faced several obstacles while trying to access abortion care in Texas. One of the issues for both of them were the extremely long wait lines at the clinics. HB2 forced many clinics to close, meaning clinics near Dallas and Austin, where Candace and Valerie live respectively, were overbooked. This was a direct result of the admitting privilege requirements and the ambulatory surgical center requirements, but it led to another problem. So remember Candace had a hormonal IUD and she wasn't getting her period. She didn't realize she was pregnant until about 13 weeks along. She'd have to wait several weeks for an appointment, and with the state's mandatory counseling session and 24-hour waiting period, she'd need two appointments. That's two days off work. She was worried that if anything happened and she'd have to reschedule one of those appointments, she'd be past the 20-week mark and could no longer legally get an abortion in Texas. Valerie was in a similar situation regarding the 20-week ban. She was 17 weeks pregnant when she got the devastating fetal diagnosis of alobar halimprosencephaly, which doctors told her was 100% incompatible with life. 
The wait for an appointment was several weeks long, which would put her past 20 weeks. Um, that's a really great point. Um, and this is something that I think uh, both uh, Justice Elena Kagan in oral arguments over uh, HB2 and in Justice Breyer's majority opinion does really well, which is to show that causation correlation argument, right? You close clinics. Well, it's not as though you decrease demand. Those patients have to go somewhere else. So then those additional clinics are overburdened and patients can't can't access um, that care. And exactly as you said, you can either get pushed up to that 20-week window where they may not be able to legally get an abortion in the state of Texas anymore, or then be forced to travel outside the state where they can access that care. And so one of the things that was really important, I think, in uh, the decision in Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstad is that Justice Breyer really talks about the layering effect that these regulations and and um, barriers pose to patients trying to access an abortion. So it is very much like you've said and, and that we've heard from the women's experiences um, on this podcast that it is not simply a restriction. It is not simply the admitting privileges component of HB2 that stands in the way. It is the entire panoply of, of restrictions that we expect patients to navigate in a very short and very stressful window of time. Let's talk about HB2 now. So if these two provisions have been, are, are gone. Well, um, so we still have the 20-week ban in effect, which is um, a huge problem, um, in part, as we've talked about, because... Um, while HB2's, while the decision in Whole Woman's Health was fantastic, it didn't mean that immediately 20 new clinics in Texas opened. So the question of, um, you know, the real strain on the resources that are already there, that remains. Um, and so I think that there is, you know, there needs to be a serious look at the extent to which um, the 20-week ban component of it is adding to those, you know, layers of burdens that Justice Breyer um, described in in the opinion. So there's that. Um, and, you know, the other component, too, as we talk about the various layers of restriction are, you know, these restrictions on, on medication abortion. And so, you know, one of the concerns that Justice Kennedy brought up during um, oral arguments in Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstead was the fact that nationally medicinal abortion rates are going up, right? That's a good thing. It's earlier in the pregnancy. Medicinal abortions are very safe. They're very low cost, low um, overhead to, um, to perform. And they're going up everywhere except in Texas. And in Texas, those rates are going down and uh, surgical abortions are going up. And so, again, you know, I think the future of HB2 is, you know, the bill is still largely intact. Those two clinic closure provisions are gone um, for the moment. Um, I also don't at all trust the Texas legislature not to come up with some new bunch of whatever in the next legislative uh, session in 2017. So how quickly do you think we will see the positive effects of this law? 
Well, we've seen them already in the sense that um, the Alabama attorney general has said that he is withdrawing his appeal of a ruling that blocked Alabama's trap measures. The Supreme Court um, uh, the very following day from Hellerstead on Tuesday today uh, turned away cases from Wisconsin and um, Mississippi. Uh, effectively putting an end to challenges for similar laws in, in Wisconsin, Louisiana, Mississippi. So, I mean, though that's all really good news, um, be, especially in the Deep South, where so much of the impact of trap, um, these particular trap laws were, um, were really, really devastating. One of the biggest things people have said in, in listening to Choiceless is that they feel like they hear these stories, they didn't know anything about this, it makes them so mad, and then they feel like we aren't giving them this call to arms, right? That what do they need to do to try to combat this? Uh, so what's the call to arms for the layperson who's just angry at these episodes and had no idea any of this was going on? Well, um, first and foremost, I think, is to um, see if you can uh, volunteer at a local clinic or with your local abortion funds because we need all of the help. One thing that I think is a very um, immediate and attainable goal if we put our mind and our resources to it is the push to end the Hyde Amendment and um, its correspondingly awful cousin, the Helms Amendment. Um, these are restrictions on public financing um, for abortion um, in with the Helms Amendment. It extends to service members overseas. The Hyde Amendment, it's for patients on Medicaid. Um, these are just appropriations decisions. These are spending decisions. They get made um, each time the budget comes up for renewal. And for the first time, um, the Democrats have included in their platform um, a repeal hide pledge. And I think that that is something that we really need to push because that opens up or at least takes away one of the initial economic barriers. So listeners should call their congresspeople and tell them to end hide, to to not re-up it, and the same with Helms. Um, I do think um, the other part of it, which you've mentioned quite a bit, is storytelling. You know, not all of us have had an abortion, but, you know, all of us have the ability to speak frankly about abortion politics. And so if this is something that um, a listener feels really outraged about, they should tell people. Um, they should talk about this. It is just because it has to do with abortion doesn't mean it's impolite conversation. Um, and so I do think that that's working to push that that stigma and, you know, um, even within, you know, our own tendencies to maybe self-censor or self-edit depending on who we're around. I think, you know, we need to push ourselves a little bit in that direction too. So I think the self-censoring issue is huge here. And I've noticed it even with myself this season. Traveling to capture these stories, I've been in a few places and circumstances that I didn't know what to say to people when they asked what I did or, or what the show was about. And when I was in South Dakota to talk to Kelsey for episode six, she told me someone threatened her at a bar once because she said she was a nurse at Planned Parenthood. I've had similar uncomfortable conversations. And even with people who care about me and who I really care about, uh, they've made it clear that they've disapproved of the content of the show. And sometimes, you know, more often than not, my immediate instinct is to apologize or change the subject because I'm worried about making someone else uncomfortable. 
But then I think about the people who've been so generous with their stories this season and everyone who's been on the show this season has told me that they chose to share their stories to reduce the stigma, to help other people who might be going through some of the same stuff. But because there's so much stigma, so much shame, they just they feel like they can't talk about it, Um, which then means they're missing the opportunity to hear from somebody else, to hear from somebody else. Oh, that happened to me. I I understand completely. and these stories are helping. And so are the facts. So is the data. Um, so I think the fact that those stories were there not only helped drive the court's willingness to uh, produce an opinion that is um, very, you know, it's almost clinical in its approach, which is not how at all we're accustomed to talking about abortion rights in the law. Um, but I think it's those stories that likely got Justice Kennedy um, to sign on to that opinion um, as a fifth vote rather than feel the need to write, you know, a, a, an opinion on his own. It's speculation, but I mean, the power of individual storytelling um, in terms of the culture in the courts is not something I I think that we should um, just write off. I think that, you know, the to the extent that the storytelling makes the courts more willing to engage seriously with the data because there is a personal narrative behind it, that helps. And I think to the extent that the data helps drive home the impact um, that these decisions have on people's lives who the federal courts may or may not always be concerned about. Um, I think that both are sort of very necessary and um, need to coexist together. Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt was a pro-choice win for sure, but there are many more challenges to access. We can't stress enough that while these two provisions were struck down, much of HB2 is still alive and well. One in three women will have an abortion by 45, so we need to keep talking about it. We need to call out junk science. We need to stay on top of state politics. People are very concerned about national elections, and rightly so, but most of these restrictions are being passed at the state level. And just so many laws have been passed in so many states. Jessica, would you say that this case is kind of like a culture shift or giving our voices back, giving us that momentum again? I certainly think it has the potential to be um, and that it would be a shame if we squandered this moment. Within the Supreme Court, there has been some inklings that they were just not really super excited to get back into, um, in, in any substantive fashion, the abortion debate. What I think happened with Texas and HB2, though, is that it just forced the issue. They couldn't avoid it anymore. Thank you so much to Jessica Mason Piclo, Vice President of Law and the Courts here at Rewire, for sharing her insights on this complicated case. This episode of Choiceless was produced by me, Jen Stanley, for Rewire Radio, with editorial oversight by Mark Folletti. Jody Jacobson is our editor in chief. Brady Swenson is our director of technology. Music for this episode was by Doug Helsel. And special thanks to all the staff at Rewire. For more on Holman's Health versus Hellerstedt, including a comprehensive timeline of HB2, visit our website at rewire.news/choiceless. We have one more episode of Choiceless this season before we take a short hiatus to record season two. If you like what you've been hearing so far, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes. This helps give us more visibility so that we can bring these stories to an even wider audience. Thanks for listening.